Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. Hi, I'm Joe Becker. And this is the Yikes Podcast. of the Yikes podcast. Um, this is a bit different. We're trying to record this remotely um, during Corona, um, all this stuff that's going on. So please do bear with us with the sound quality. Yeah, it was a bit of a bumpy ride, but we we managed and we are super excited because today is all about fashion and we have a super, super inspiring guest with us. Uh, we're super honored to have her on this pod. Yes, we have the amazing Arja Barber coming to talk to us. Um, She talked to us all about um, sustainability and ethical fashion and race. And we went into cultural appropriation and system change and loads of really good things. Um, She's so inspiring. Um, If you don't know who she is, she's a writer and a stylist. Um, On her Instagram account, she talks to us and on her Patreon and Twitter and other spaces all about... um, fashion and privilege and sustainability and race and how all of these different things intersect um she is one of the people that joe and i first went on the podcast she's super inspiring and really really cool and like yeah we're really honored to have been able to chat with her yeah particularly in the end she's she gives us this pep talk which i think we all need to hear especially in the current times um and yeah we're super super inspired um by what she has to say especially in the light of fashion revolution week this week so please continue to listen even if the sound isn't the best but um yeah thank you all for tuning in we're really excited to continue this project even in turbulent times So we wanted to make sure that this episode was accessible to people who might have never heard about fast fashion before and its um, social and environmental impacts. Um, Fast fashion is basically the consequence of the fact that now we have about 52 different seasons a year. So in the past, there were four seasons. There'd be um, spring, summer, winter and fall. But now pretty much every week a new line of clothes comes out. Um, Clothing is made on this huge mass scale. It's made to be lower quality it's made to be worn only a few times and then thrown away Um, and that creates a load of waste and has a huge environmental impact Um, and it's also really linked to the fossil fuel industry so around 70 million barrels of oil a year are used to make polyester fibers in our clothing so clothes have like a huge environmental impact whether it's whether it's growing the cotton and having to use water resources to grow the cotton um, or it's making like man-made fibers so with jeans as well the jeans manufacturer Levi Strauss um, estimated that a pair of its iconic 501 jeans will produce the equivalent of 33.4 kilograms of carbon dioxide um, across its entire lifespan and that's the same as driving 69 miles in the average US car like the impact of fashion is actually so much uh, bigger than what you might first think about what it would take to make a piece of clothing Mm, and then also the like the waste that is generated because we create like these like super low quality um, garment pieces which are designed to only last for very limited time so we can buy more and the cycle feeds itself but um, this waste generated obviously is also super polluting um, due to the toxins and the landfills that it creates uh, and obviously also there's like a range of social implications which we will go more into in this episode.
Hi everyone, um, thank you so much for listening. Um, this podcast is made possible thanks to all of our patrons, so we really want to say thank you to them. And Patreon is really important to us as we really want this space to be owned by our listeners. Um, a lot of things we talk about and the nature of the conversations that we have don't really match well with a lot of advertising platforms um, or kind of companies, which means that um, Patreon is kind of how we can keep this podcast going and it's really, really important to us. So we would really, really, really love if you'd consider becoming a Patreon. There are extra bonus episodes on Patreon. There's like, you can get out downloads of the music. You can hear Finn, our producer, actually speak on the Patreon, which is very exciting. We'll be doing like, like Q&As and there'll be lots of different content on there. So we'd really, really love um, if you came along and joined us over on Patreon. That's um, where we have lots of extra fun stuff and also just helps this happen. And if you've learned anything from this podcast or from me or joe and you'd like to like feedback into our work um patreon's the best way to do that um and we'd be really really grateful if you could sign up for that so um our patron is the yikes podcast and you can find that in the show notes and thank you so much for supporting us and i hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you over on patreon oh this is exciting this is so exciting um Thank so, you for having me. I've, I've, I'm catching up on podcasts and I really love yours. It's just taken me a minute to like catch up on all of them. But like, I've definitely enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad. We, you were literally, when we were talking about guests that we wanted to have, um, like all the way back when like we started. One. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> oh, that's really touching. I I am so like surprised when people tell me like, oh, people requesting you. I'm like, really? <laughs> No, oh my gosh, you're such an inspiration, I think, to all of us. And yeah, quite fangirling to even have you on the pot. So thank you so much. <laughs> you know what it is? I just saw a space that needed filling. Like, honestly, mm. everybody is so over influencers. And so when my platform mm. started to grow, I was like, if I do the same thing that everyone is doing, where like it's pay for play with brands, then there's no point to me even talking about this stuff because nobody's really going to listen. Mm. And so by not saying, okay, this is this by having just like hard boundaries about what I will and won't do from the get go, I think it's been really helpful and mm. people trusting me and my views. I was saying to Joe yesterday that actually like it was when I, I can't remember the first post that I saw of yours, but when I found you on Instagram, I was like hooked like immediately from just the fact that you're so unapologetic in like how you express your views and how you say things and how you call things yeah. out. And like, that's so important. And I think that that's, I've learned so much from that. And like, I feel like it's encouraged me a lot as well, but um, I definitely think a lot of that comes from your integrity and the fact that your space is your space and you're not like compromising in that. And you like, because you might don't choose to do brand things in the same way that means that people do like respect your integrity so much i think that's so important um i'm really yeah cool thank you um i think you will probably understand this as um a woman of color i've spent my entire life with people telling me what boundaries i'm expected to have like i've spent my entire life making white people feel comfortable about the conversation mm. surrounding race and i just reached a point where i was like i can't do this anymore because it's killing me you know i spent my entire life being told that like i wasn't allowed to have harsh views or like as a black person it would scare people if i like you know express myself mm. in a way that seemed angry or unapologetic you know and so 
I just reached a breaking point in my own life where I was just like, nope, this is the way I've got to do things for me. And it turned out to be something that worked. Mm. Is that also how you kind of started your, like the work that you're doing now? Or I've, I've bounced around so much and I've learned mm. so much from like Twitter. Like I don't do a lot on Twitter these days because it is, it can be a bit of a cesspool. Like people can be wild. People can be <laughs> wild on Twitter. And so I tend to sort of drop what I'm thinking on Twitter like a turd and then I leave. Um, I don't stay for people to pick fights with me. I don't, because I know what Twitter's like. I was on it for years before my platform was this and just seeing how people can be extremely, I don't even want to say cutthroat. I, I feel like just ornery for no reason. And I feel like Instagram has a little less of that. So that's kind of why I've made Instagram my, my home. Uh, there's a place for Twitter. I just won't stay and argue all day long with people on Twitter. Um, with Instagram, you know, my space is my living room. If you come into my living room, take your damn feet off my furniture. And if you put your feet on the furniture, I'll block you or delete you. End of story. You know, like I have, I'm allowed to have those rules where Twitter sort of leaves you wide open for people to sort of kind of do what they want. Um, so I also was on Facebook quite a bit, which was where I've learned a lot, but I also realized Facebook is also another sort of setting where it does stoke the fires of people deliberately misunderstanding you. And so I don't even, I have a rule. I don't argue on people's Facebook walls. Like the only where the only place where I put a lot of energy is Instagram because for Twitter and Facebook, I just feel like it's a waste of my energy and Yeah, but I learned a lot from just reading Facebook threads for the last mm. few years. Like I got very vocal on Facebook in probably around 2014, like when Black Lives Matter started to really sort of kick up in the US. Um, it all just coincided with like the pile of crap we have now in the US. Like mm. when the minute Barack Obama became president, like white people mm. started tripping. And you just started getting, that was when people started calling Facebook race book because the conversation around race was just brought to, it was like, it was always beneath the surface. And like the Obama presidency, regardless of how you feel about him, like I feel, I, I appreciate that, you know, he was the first, but now when I look back at his policies, I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. but at the time, I defended him because in comparison to what we have now, the man was a dream, you know? And so I, I just felt like that was a time period where people were getting real weird. And then I realized these were the conversations we need to be having all along. So I sort of dove face first into the race conversation on Facebook and I was still writing about fashion on the side. And then on Instagram, I managed to sort of just, mash it all together mm, wow well thank you for sharing and giving us a little bit like insight and in how it all I guess came together because Michaela and I were both saying how um, we really admire your work and how you speak about privilege and how we both think that you're one of the most I guess important voices in like the fashion world and ethical sustainable fashion but particularly with your um I guess, insights into gender and race and how those 
intersect in that like fashion and sustainable world, but also on social media. Um, I wrote about so much of this before I had this platform and like I was writing for free or like $5 in a sandwich, you know? (laughs) So this is, my platform is basically just a culmination of like everything I've written about for the last 15 years of my life. So um, I think like within the fashion, sustainability, sustainable fashion world, and um, people are starting to have more of a conversation about how privilege comes into all of that. Um, and I think that you're, you are like the leading voice in talking about all of these different things. Um, if people have never like thought, I know this might sound ridiculous, but if people never thought about how privilege comes into sustainable fashion and that kind of, those kind of conversations, like what would you say to people around that? Mm, you really have to investigate all of your buying habits and why you're buying and you know, it's, it is all cumulative of our entire world because like when we look at fast fashion, you know, Celine Simmons work explores this, the fast fashion lines that are used to produce most of the clothing that we buy and wear today are the same lines that were made during the days of colonialism when England Mm -hmm. was going around the world, raiding all the countries for all their resources. So Today, we still have these same colonialist lines that's just in how our products are produced and who grows our food, for instance. And so none of this has really been a new thing. It's been there all along. We just have to figure out how we can deconstruct it and make systems that are better and serve all people instead of, you know, the the privileged and elite at the top of the pyramid, essentially. And so... You know, if someone said to me, well, why is fast fashion a bad thing? I think the first thing I would say is fast fashion is a system where at the top of it are a bunch of billionaires. And that's something that right now everybody looks at Bezos and goes, he's, he's the boogeyman. But I'm like, there's a lot of boogeymans and a lot of them are making the t-shirt that you bought from Topshop or H&M or whatever. And so it's one of those systems where the people at the top are extremely wealthy, but the people at the bottom, the garment workers are some of the poorest people on earth. And so if you just look at that system, that's, that's a really crap system. Um, but it goes deeper than that because we know that the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of carbon emissions. Um, so it is a polluting industry And, you know, not only does it abuse labor, but it pollutes places. You know, what we have is a system where we get our raw materials that go into our garment come from countries in the global south um, where poor brown and black people live. Uh, We get those resources. We basically rob them of it. We, We get it for very cheap. And then we also abuse their labor force. So you have the poorest people in the world making garments with their natural resources, which should technically make their countries very rich, but they're not rich. And then the garment gets brought to the West where we enjoy it, consume it, but we do it rapidly because the system is sped up in a way where we're encouraged to buy more than we actually need. And then by the next season, that garment doesn't serve us anymore because maybe it's shoddily produced or maybe we just can't hold on to all the clothing we're buying. So then we have this system of quote unquote donation where we put it into a bag and then we ship it overseas because people that don't have money want our fast fashion cast-offs. News <laughs> alert, they don't. It is a 
it is a environmental disaster in some countries. There was a program on ITV recently about the Ghana clothing trade and how we are just shipping tons and tons of clothing to Ghana every single day. And it becomes a rotting trash mountain, which pollutes the neighborhood. And on top of that, it ruins the local market. And mm. so if you are a creator in one of these countries, you cannot sell your goods because how on earth are you going to compete with a t-shirt that costs three cents? Mm. Mm. So we are ruining the environment. We are harming garment workers. We are ruining the environment where we dump our cast offs. We are filling the landfill with stuff that we don't really need or enjoy, you know? And so the entire system from top to bottom is rotten. Mm -hmm. And that is what I would tell someone who was asking mm -hmm. me why from the get go. I guess it also really sustains like white saverism of like, you know, oh, my going from like, oh, but we're giving these people jobs, which is inherently like problematic and disgusting. Crappy jobs. Uh, exactly. And, uh, and then also like the, even like the donation part of like, I'm giving away t-shirts, which I don't want to wear anymore because of like, you know, because so, I feel bad about purchasing yeah, that and much. Then, and then you like donate that to other people and, and think you're doing a good thing. And it's, yeah, like the whole thing is really based on like supremacy and, uh, Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. 150% white saviorism is in every part of this formula and privileged uh, saviorism. You know, I got a taste into that when I was in my 20s. I used to volunteer at my local charity shop and I did this because I was helping out with um one of my neighbors has a camp for kids in South Africa and a lot of the kids don't have shoes. So I was like, well, if I volunteer at the charity shop, they'll give me children's shoes and then you can take them. So I was basically marking and opening bags of clothing all day. And I was shocked by the amount that passed through this charity shop. And that sort of gave me a lot of insight into how much we're buying and how much we're consuming and why it's such a problematic thing. Mm. Yeah, I remember um, reading at the time during the Haiti earthquake, like the clothing industry in Haiti went, like, completely went bust and went away because so many people donated clothes there that it meant that the like, local tailors couldn't sell their clothes anymore. And then I've, I've experienced in when I've worked in Calais in the refugee warehouses there, the kind of things that people donate are the kind of things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't want anyone to wear. Like they're things that like are completely like have holes in them or they're just really terrible quality or I don't know, they, they some of them like are soiled items that people will donate. And it's like people kind of, yeah, the, the things that you wouldn't want, you wouldn't wear yourself. It doesn't mean that you think that, I, I don't know. I think people assume that if someone's in a bad situation, that they all like remove all of their dignity and that they don't deserve like anything of quality. And the kind of things that people were giving away and the kind of things that we saw showed that people just buy so much, don't think about it and then just ship it off far away and like make themselves feel better about their own buying habits. And it's just, I'd, it's just beyond belief, like all of it. The, I think only 10% of things that are donated to charity shops actually end up being sold. That so, is, it. I, yeah. it, I think it's a smaller percentage um, for that, depending on the charity shop. Like you have charities like Oxfam that are doing really good things with making sure that they're not, you know, being a part of the problem. Um, but for a lot of charities, yeah. And on top of that, you see also 
fast fashion companies directly donating to charity because mm -hmm. they're producing too much. Mm -hmm. And so they're not selling it all. So then they donate it to a charity because it's a tax write off for them. So not only have they wow. made this problem, but now they get to take money off of their bottom line because they gave it to charity and the charity shops are overrun with fast fashion that essentially nobody wants. <laughs> Wow. I've seen it a lot in London. The quality of charity shopping in London has slid infinitely downhill in 20 years. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I even read about some brands, how they didn't want to, um, they, they were refusing to donate their clothes because they didn't want um, different kinds of people to walk around with their label on. And it just shows like how these brands, you know, don't care at all about, like from the from the producers on to like anyone really, um, and how it's all about profit and how easily we not only dispose the the you know the environmental resources that we are like using, but also like yeah like the people across the whole yeah across the whole chain, and it's really disgusting actually in so so many ways. Yeah, it is. It's uh, they call it quote unquote brand integrity. We don't want to ruin the integrity of our brand. And I'm like, if you are having this discussion, your brand has no integrity in my mind yeah. anyways. Mm. What you're saying as well, for me, what a big thing around like boycotting fast fashion and becoming aware of all this stuff um, was like realizing how like ne I see neocolonialism neo so clearly through fast fashion and like as you're saying how the how the supply lines are but also how the arguments are made that um like Joe was saying that how at least they have a job like at least they're working the uh, working the, these jobs it's better than them having no jobs and yet the people who are saying the make, making these arguments like wouldn't be happy to put their relatives or their friends or the people that are immediately around them in those situations which shows that they value that person's life is so much lower and like throughout the entire supply chain like how we treat cotton farmers and how we treat um the people who are having to make the materials and then the garment workers themselves like all of it's kind of like those people over there that we that are far away from us that um are usually like people of color in the global south like they can do these jobs that put them at risk and they mm. can like almost sacrifice like so much of their life in order for us to have something that isn't an essential so like we can have tons of clothes all the time and it's and that cost is worth it whereas me having to like shell out a few more pounds like isn't worth it that is such a good point and like people love to like shout about jobs when it comes to questioning their buying habits but nobody says that when a brand decides to quote unquote restructure and lays off a third of their company. Mm -hmm. Nobody says that. Nobody goes, what about the jobs? Why are we supporting this company that treats people in such a way? It's only a conversation that comes up when people are trying to justify why they're propping up a crappy mm -hmm. system. On top of that, as we just saw in the pandemic, a lot of people in the UK were not happy about fast fashion companies forcing their employees to work during a global pandemic. This was something mm. that I talked about a lot on Twitter because a lot of fast fashion stores, H&M, Topshop, Uniqlo, looking at you, <laughs> were open well into this pandemic when everything was shutting down. They were waiting for the government to give them the, you need to shut down. And I think 
Call me cynical, but it seems like the reason they did that was because the government offered a bailout package for people that were losing work during this. And mm. so we already see it where Topshop is already saying, I need you to bail my employees out. Well, Philip Green is a billionaire. So bail mm. your own employees out, Philip Green. Mm. Stop being a billionaire. Mm. H&M, four billionaires in that family. Uniqlo, definitely a billionaire. Zara, billionaire. These mm. people are all on the top richest list. And I see no reason why we shouldn't be expecting more from companies that are run by people that have this much money. Mm. And one thing that I found really interesting around that and kind of noteworthy around the fact that people were so like enraged that people were being forced to work during a pandemic and like being put into it. So basically people being were, were very surprised that people in the UK or in the US were having to put themselves in unsafe working conditions. And I'm like, this is what you've been forcing people in the global South to do for years for like, for basically forever you put them in factories that have cracks in them and that collapse in like the Rana Plaza incident and yet when it's I don't know it seems like when it's people in like the global north or in the west then people seem way more outraged but like we've been saying this about people in the global south being put in unsafe working conditions for ages and people haven't had the same outrage like when I posted it's about this fact, idea yeah. of caring for your own and it's mm. quite frankly a bit disgusting um but yeah people cannot for some reason everybody's outraged that your sibling mother father niece neighbor is being forced to work during a global pandemic in a shop where they, they're saying that they don't even have hand sanitizer, but yet we are not, you know, completely outraged that it seems every couple of years a factory collapses or there's mm. a fire and hundreds, sometimes thousands of people die. How do we, how do we manage to turn off our empathy in that way? And, and, you know, there is a part of me that when I used to buy fast fashion, kind of knew deep down inside that I was turning off because there was no way that a dress that is, you know, made in such a way should cost $20 or 20 pounds. But it's this idea of looking out for your own that we have to stop because we are all connected. Mm. There are all these people always tell me whenever we talk about race, they're always like, we're one race, the human race. And that's just a way of not having the conversation about race and privilege. But if you truly believe that, then start acting like it. Start caring about your fellow human, whether they live in the UK or Bangladesh. Mm. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I fear this global pandemic has been used so much to highlight the, these inequalities, but it does make me wonder how, like, how have we not, or like, why did you know, why did we need a global pandemic to highlight inequalities that have been highlighted for like throughout so many sources and there's so many people highlighting these things and have been doing the work for so long. And it kind of, yeah, it makes me actually really furious that now so many people are talking about, oh, only now we are in a, like exposing inequalities because now I'm, I'm threatened or like my, my family members threatened. Um, but turning a blind eye of how our consumption patterns have been propping up these inequalities all along. And absolutely. Yeah. I think it's this weird human condition where we really, really, really have to see it to believe it. And I mean, even in London, like I live in Southeast London and the air quality is terrible. And it is only in the absence of the pollution 
do I go, oh my goodness, I cannot go back to what we were breathing before. Every time I go for a walk, I notice it. And the fact that I now notice it because it's gone makes me really weary to how much we can just get used to pretending isn't there or just get used to ignoring things, you know, but having experienced London with better air quality, I think that I will definitely be, you know, doing more championing around that because I just, I can't, I can't do this. If I have a kid in the future, I don't want to bring them up in a city where their lungs are gonna, you know, just be breathing in the worst quality air possible. So sometimes, unfortunately, as humans, we somehow can't act fast enough until we actually see it. You know, I don't, I, I don't, I wish I had an answer to this, but yeah. I think a lot of people, when it comes to consumption, I think we really have to do a deeper dive into why we're consuming because mm-hmm. we shop within our society like it's a balm to soothe our hurt feelings, whether we're happy, sad, celebratory, you know, feeling rejected. And so I think we have to have a really deep conversation about consuming and and why we're consuming. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, hearing you say that and the recent Instagram post you did about this as well, it made me really emotional because I feel it highlights so well of how we normalize crisis Mm-hmm. so well but also like how we normalize crisis for other people particularly around gender race class and other systems of oppression and uh, yeah and it made me makes me like wonder you know like maybe maybe this is something that you can share with us like how you see us going forward um around fast fashion and um yeah and anything that's on your mind really I hope, and I don't know if I'll be right, um, but my biggest hope is that this this pause, people will actually think a little bit deeper about why they're consuming. I think that there is going to be a change. I don't think fast fashion is going to go away tomorrow, um, but I think that there will be a change in the power that these companies hold after this because I, I say this on like every podcast that I'm on, But fast fashion and that system of consumption only works if you have people in the cycle. Mm. If a person takes a break from, I mean, when I speak to this, I'm speaking about myself personally. When I quit fast fashion, the thing I had to do most was stay out of the stores. Mm. First, I had to unsubscribe from all the emails because that's how they get you. Like every day an email push. Oh, you should buy. Ooh, sale, sale, sale. I mean... This is hideous, but Boohoo literally sent out an email on the day that the relief checks started to hit, like encouraging people to spend their $1,200 that the U.S. government was giving out on on Boohoo. Yes, honestly, it's disgusting. I I put it on Twitter and I was just like, this is why I hate fast fashion. Mm. So you have people that are literally, you know, on the brink of, you know, destruction getting a little bit of bailout and like this company is basically like, give it to us, give it to us. It's not even funny. It's so evil. Um, but I think if we can just have a few breaks where people sort of have a moment to step back, I do think that a lot of people will not want to go back to the old way and will think, 
why was I buying in that way? I didn't actually need all of that clothing. So what is the deeper message, you know? And during this time period, I don't want to at all like, um, you know, be like, it's amazing because people are dying. But one thing I am seeing is people just walking to walk people really finding different ways to communicate, um, people enjoying each other in a way that I maybe didn't notice before. And I hope that we can keep a lot of that going and maybe fill some of that void that quick purchases tend to sort of do in our society. Mm. Mm. That's my hope. Yeah. Like, um, I think that obviously like we've talked about this on like our last episode as well, like the pandemic, like isn't a good thing and we're not saying that at all but if you're gonna no. like, create um habits in this time like especially around fashion i found that this is a time to like get used to the clothes you already have like you're yes. literally not going out <laughs> and you're not having to see people all the time so like try on your clothes in like different outfits like try styling things differently like with what you already have and you'll probably realize that like you have you have more than enough already you don't need yes. to go out and buy more all the time and that you were being told to do that buy all these stores and like but I was watching Gogglebox actually last night with my, with my family and on it one person was saying like and she was like oh like I can't just go and pop in the shops all the time anymore like it feels weird like I feel like I should be buying stuff so she'd been ordering stuff online and then she was like I actually don't need any of this and I was just like wow I feel like I'm seeing someone have like an epiphany around I love that I love that I feel like like both of my sisters are um you know they're they're not as politically active as I am but I feel like I've seen both of them change their habits through, you know, talking to me and witnessing the work that I do. And that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, mm. my, my young, my younger sister is, she is a very, very good bargain shopper and she has just <laughs> found that Poshmark is her jam. <laughs> like <laughs> she is, she is all about getting a good deal on Poshmark on something that would cost a lot more money elsewhere. And so it's, cool to see people find new habits to sort of, you know, just enjoy the things that they've enjoyed in the past. And I guess that's my big hope is that people will come out of here having had a break and rethink the way they're doing things because it isn't necessary. What we now know is that you don't need to be shopping every week or even every month. Mm. So what would be your like biggest tip to someone who wants to, um, start like boycotting fast fashion like what would be the first thing that you should say they should do you'd mentioned like unsubscribing from emails but like is there anything else you'd say that they should like, unsubscribe from the emails stop going into the stores especially when you're feeling crap about yourself like i always tell people i used to buy things when i didn't feel good about myself and so shopping shouldn't be a solution to having a bad day you know and also if you do go into the store don't wear something you hate. Like don't wear those trousers that you really hate or, a, you know, an outfit that doesn't make you feel great. If I do go into a store, I wear the nicest item of clothing I have because what happens with my brain is even if I go into a store that I like, if what they're offering to me isn't the same quality, isn't as 
stellar as the thing that I am already wearing, then I am less likely to make a, a purchase just because. And so I started doing this thing where I was like, okay, if I'm going to go into the shops, I'm going to wear this amazing handmade superior quality wool sweater. And then I'm also going to wear these really cool shoes that I got. And so when you do that, you automatically compare what's in the store into what's on your body and that need to spend just sort of dissipates. Mm. Yeah. Cause the, the, I think the first thing people should do is like buy less. Yes, absolutely. Buy less, but also find your personal style because mm. I found before I really knew my style, it was always like trying a bit of this, trying a bit of that, dipping your toe in every direction. But if you actually figure out what your style is and what it is that you like, you, you make a lot less mistakes and you're able to look into your wardrobe and genuinely like what you see instead of feeling like you have nothing to wear. So that's a, a, a one thing that you can do and you can hire a stylist for that, but you can also just get on Pinterest and play around, you know, and that is free. It costs you nothing. And sometimes it's just as satisfying as going shopping. So figure out what it is that triggers you to want to buy and work on that and, and slow down. Um, and don't beat yourself up if you, you know, cave and end up buying something here or there, because for me, it wasn't this whole thing where I just like quit immediately cold Turkey. That just didn't work for me. But little by little, you will find the more time you actually work on it, the less you desire to purchase. Oh, that's super, um, helpful. Thank you for sharing those tips. Um, and do you have anything also on, because I've, I find it sometimes that with fashion, because I've never been into fashion, um, it's, it's very like easy for me. And I, I kind of like trace it back to also like my, my privilege, but um, to just abstain with, for this whole thing, but mm -hmm. not actively actually doing anything, even though I might not, you know, actively buy something, I still don't really, yeah, help to like lessen or change the industry. Do you have anything... Um, any tips on like how we can also, I guess, spread the word more, like be more politically vocal about things? Yeah, be vocal about um, what the fashion industry is doing on all your social media. You know, people are always like mm, armchair activism, but that just comes from people that feel uncomfortable by the things you're challenging. There is something very, very powerful about taking a swipe at a brand on Twitter, on Instagram, et cetera, because they read that stuff and it doesn't make them feel good when a search engine pulls up that all of a sudden people are tweeting because you're forcing workers to work during a pandemic or your name is linked to a factory fire where hundreds of people were killed. So even if, you know, you just abstain, but you want to do more, amplify the conversation because The only thing that's really going to make a lot of these brands change is seeing that they're not making money anymore, seeing that people do not feel like they can spend money with them anymore. I mean, there's a brand who did a collaboration with another brand that I really love. And I just wrote on their Facebook comment section, you know, I really love this brand you're collaborating with, but I know that you don't pay your workers. So I'm not going to be buying any of this. And all these people were like, Oh, can you give me more information about what you're talking about? So mm -hmm. I'm like, sure, here's a link. So there's all these people going, Oh yeah, I would have been into this too, but I'm not going to buy it either. Now that I know, you know, so 
Don't underestimate the power that you have just being vocal on the internet about the things that brands are doing that isn't cool because you have a lot of power and don't listen to the haters that talk about stuff like social justice warrior. What are they doing <laughs> with their time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there are, there's so much power of like with doing things online and like, I've even found that like send, I know that it can take up time, maybe not that much worth it, but like I, if I'm thinking about it, like it takes me two minutes. I'll like send an email to a brand just being like, Hey, like I have like a template that I just sent to all of them being like, Hey, like, I really like your clothes, but like, I also like want to make sure I'm respecting the people who made them. So like, what are you doing to make sure they have safe working environments? And like, sometimes they'll just reply with their like bullshit sustainability report, but sometimes like they will actually engage with it. And it depends on the size of the brand or what brand it is. But apparently in marketing, like every time someone sends a review or a comment or something like that, it gets marked down. And the more that it's said the more they like have to talk about it and start thinking about it um yeah so that's like one thing that i found to do as well yeah absolutely and you know i just i was thinking about cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation and a lot of people mm. ask me about stuff like that in fashion and i guess the one thing i would say with like cultural appropriation is who's getting paid like if you're appreciating someone's culture, you're giving back in some way. But if you're just like ripping off um, someone's culture and making money from it, then how does that benefit them in any way? I don't know why I just thought to go there, but I was thinking about like Dior has been like in so much trouble for just being really culturally appropriative. And someone asked me, well, you know, what's the harm in this? And I said, you know what? I would love for one of these big luxury brands to go to an indigenous group and be like, Hey, we love your style. How about we hire a hundred of your artisans to make these amazing shoes for us and we'll mm. pay you really well. And that I would get behind. But if the person whose culture, whose, whose culture the brand is taking from isn't benefiting in any way, then that's appropriation because the money is just being given to the person who has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Mm. I don't know why I went there. I just was thinking no, about it for some reason. I, th I think this comes up also every year for pride of how, you know, these big brands love to put suddenly rainbow flags on everything. Mm -hmm. Um, or now, I guess, like, a similar story is during the pandemic, we like to clap for the NHS, but then are we actually serious about, you know, paying them or paying respect to what the cause is for and, um, yeah, doing actually the work that rather than just theorizing about and making money off those, off those things. So it just feels like so many of these actions are created in order to distract from having a real conversation about societal oppression. Mm. Like who are we clapping for? Are we clapping for ourselves? Because if those nurses aren't getting raises in PPE, then like, what are our claps doing? No one can buy groceries with us clapping for them. That, mm. that You can't go into Sainsbury's and be like, <laughs> I got a thousand claps last night. Is that good? <laughs> cool. No one's going to pay their rent with claps, you know? So like, <laughs> If we aren't changing systems, then like these actions are just being used to bolster ourselves and make ourselves feel better. Mm. 
and that's so like relevant to fashion and especially like how yeah the appropriation of different cultures because it's like I think with any action especially if businesses are doing it you need to think like is that actually benefiting the people that they say that it's for or is it just benefiting them is this a way that they can kind of like capitalize off some some sort of oppression or they can capitalize off something bad that's happened um and like really thinking about that absolutely you know like just in all of your actions whether it's what you purchase you know whether you're clapping ask yourself who is this benefiting who is this Mm. is it is it beneficial to the person in bangladesh for me to buy this five dollar dress or is it beneficial to me because hey i got a dress for five dollars everyone you know think about Mm. that but i think there's just too much of well, it's better than nothing. Another thing I wanted to write about, and I was actually thinking about this today, we got to stop acting like companies and corporations are people because I hear a lot of like Mm. this dialogue that, well, they're just doing their best. And I'm like, oh, fuck off. A person is doing their best, but (laughs) H&M is not doing their best because H&M isn't a person. You know, there is this documentary called The Corporation. I always tell everyone to watch it because the conclusion is that in an American court of law, a corporation can act like a person. And that is a completely messed up thing about our system. Because if a corporation were a person, it would be a sociopath. (laughs) It would, it would. And so there's this whole dialogue, you know, where if you criticize a brand or an action, we're all just doing our best. No, this is a business. You know, when I hear this on Instagram too, when a brand messes up and their followers come for them and say, you've messed up, there's always the naysayers or the people that don't want to be challenged in any way because it makes them uncomfortable with their own consumption that go, well, they're just doing their best and you're not being very nice to them. Well, I don't have to be nice to them. (laughs) They're not a human being. You know, like we really got to start thinking about these things because the way we use dialogue to protect and prop up unfair systems Mm. is a huge part of the problem Mm. and like um there's such a different power dynamic like between you as an individual calling something out and like a corporation which has so much more power being involved so like we can't make out that those things are equal and making them out there equal just like props up those systems of like of inequality I can't agree more with you on that. And people do that in the comments sections. It's like, hey, you stop being mean to Topshop. It's like, <laughs> but then like Donald Trump does the same thing. It's this thing where he's like, he'll say to journalists, oh, are you going to be mean to me today or nice to me? No one has to be nice to you. You're the m- most powerful person in the world. Fuck mm. off, you big baby. Literally. Like, Let us talk about power dynamics, who has power and who doesn't. But no one needs to be nice to Donald Trump because Donald Trump has the nuclear codes. We need to be truthful about who holds the power and who doesn't. And corporations are not people. They hold power and we need to hold them accountable. We don't have to be nice about it. We don't have to be this idea of niceness and everything is so Mm. tied to white supremacy and control. You know, you don't always have to be nice about something, especially if a system is hurting, harming and killing people. I'm not going to be nice about that. I mean, what you were saying earlier, Aja, about like how you kind of got started about like um, you didn't want to prop up anymore, like, you know, like how white people like speak about race or how like whiteness kind of props up like 
I guess, color blindness and all of this, I feel like this kind of manifests again in these, like, we are ho- like when you're not nice to a corporation or mm-hmm. when, yeah, yeah, when you like speak up about that, um, people call you out for being outraged and like, just be nice. And, and as if that will resolve anything. And it's just, yeah, it's absolute madness um, how these and systems prop each other up. Yeah, and it's also something that people really love to do to marginalize people Mm -hmm. and women. There's a book that's really good that I recommend everyone read called Good and Mad. Um, And it's about how basically people continue to oppress women by critiquing our anger instead of critiquing the reason we're angry. Wow. And it, the, you see it play out again and again, the, the trope of the angry black woman. Hillary Clinton doesn't smile. Now, I don't love Hillary Clinton. I critique her policies until the day is done. I do think that she is quite hawkish and she was not my first choice. Um, but I can acknowledge that the way sexism played out against her on the world stage is something that we as a society have to talk about. But I get that all the time. Why are you so angry? Why can't you be nicer? Because I don't want to be nicer because people are dying because of our systems. And that's not something I'm going to be nice about. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Mikaela and I have said it before, like how you hold your space online and also sharing that with us so unapologetic is super inspirational and we have so much to learn from you. And yeah, thank you for taking the time and sharing um, your thoughts with us on this podcast. It's been Thank you for having me. Don't take any shit, babies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that we're ending on that. That is so good. <laughs>